sunflowerofpeace.com. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you. Hello and welcome to today's virtual Michelle Miao Show program. I'm Michelle Miao, host and producer of the program and also a member of the Board of Governors for the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm super pleased to introduce to you our speakers today. We have Dr. Treva Lindsay, who's the Associate Professor in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department at Ohio State University and author of America, Goddamn, Violence, Black Women and the Struggle for Justice. Dr. Lindsay's new book addresses the pervasiveness of violence against Black women and girls in America. And moderating today is Anna Gifty Opoku Ajiman, who uh, is the co-founder of the Sadie Collective and author of The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System. Before we get started, just a quick reminder for our audience, if you have a question for Dr. Lindsay, you can submit them in the chat box on YouTube. Treva and Anna, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Michelle. I am so honored to be here and so honored to be in conversation with Dr. Treva Lindsay um, to talk about her important new book, America, Goddamn. <laughs> so hi, Dr. Lindsay. Let me start off by asking you, you open up by discussing Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn. And in it, you write, Mississippi Goddamn is a mere glimpse into a violent history in which anti-Black violence is constant and ravenous. For people who may not understand anti-Black violence and its history, how would you break down the ways artists have weaved stories of anti-Black violence into their work? Yes, thank you for that question. Thank you everyone for joining me today. Anna, I'm so excited to be in conversation with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation. And, and it's such a great way to open up is thinking about the artists and how artists have taken this up. And so Nina Simone, it's so interesting because we tend to think of her contemporarily as someone who was doing politicized music, who was always at the forefront of thinking about different issues of racial justice, gender justice, et cetera. When in actuality, Mississippi Goddamn is her very first protest song. And she had always talked about how difficult it was to winnow down the entire history of anti-Black violence and racial injustice to three minutes and 30 seconds. And how would one even go about doing that? But after the assassination of Medgar Evers and the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, which killed what we commonly call and identify the four little Black girls, but whose names are Carol, Denise, Cynthia, and Addie, she was inspired and felt that she had to use her music. She had to use her pen and her voice to amplify the relentlessness of anti-Black violence from slavery to the current moment and her current moment being at the kind of core of the civil rights movement 
and at the nascence of the Black Power movement. And so she is using her voice not only to talk about all of the kinds of violence that are happening, whether that be police violence against Black people, um, just everyday violence, the violence of Jim Crow, um, the violence of years uh, past and current, but she's also talking about the resistance that's been mounted against that. And so it's so important in this book for me using this as a model, as a way into this topic of thinking about the ways that ancestor Nina Simone both use the stories of violence as well as the stories of resistance. And that for me was so important for this book to not only painfully and painstakingly document what violence looks like against Black women and girls, but to also tell you what the struggle for justice looks like from the perspective of Black women and girls. I love that so much. (laughs) I really do. And I think once again, I've described Dr. Lindsay's book as an exploration into the plight and promise of Black womanhood and Black girlhood. And so um, this kind of takes us into our next question. How do we avoid this rhetoric around oppression Olympics when it comes to bringing up the discussion of Black women and girls and what we need? Yes. So there's always this this tendency, I think, to say, if we're talking about this, then that means we're not valuing this other thing or censoring this other thing. And The idea of centering often means that we're hierarchizing what's important, what we should be struggling for, what we should be rallying around. And often folks on the margins of the margins, like poor Black women, queer Black Mm -hmm. women, or Black trans women are going to be left out of that conversation if we're only looking to hold one center and to say that only this form of injustice matters. And for me, The focus on Black women and girls isn't to just say the gravity of this is so much so that they need a singular text or singular text and organizing and um, organizations and collectives working towards this, but it's about being specific. And I think it's really important in our movements to be specific, to be precise, and to Mm -hmm. look at the unique histories and distinct ways that violence and harm are impacting certain communities, which is not... in any way erasing, silencing, or rendering illegible or invisible the kinds of violences that are happening to other communities, right? So I've thought about this, about like indigenous women. We could sit here and have such a robust conversation about indigenous women in the Americas, for instance, or we could get specific with Canada, in the US, in Central and South America, we could break that down. But what that would require is history, that requires acute yep. political, social, and cultural context and analysis. Yep. And for me, the, the key part of this book and why it's so distinct is I'm experiencing this violence as mm. a Black woman. And yep. so that blending of history and theory and concept and my personal experiences means that I'm telling a story where I'm saying, here's why the stakes matter to me. I'm not Mm -hmm. hiding from the stakes. I'm not pretending I'm objective about the struggle Mm -hmm. for justice. I'm telling you, look, this person writing this book has had these experiences. This writer has friends and family who've experienced this and is in community with people who experience this. And because she's a historian, she's looked at the long art. She's looked at uh, archives, Mm. going through that. And I've also trained as a feminist and thinkers. So I'm also thinking about what are the concepts that help us to understand this. And so it's really important for me to say it's about precision and specificity, which is not about hierarchizing. And we have to be 
intentional about the ways that difference is often hierarchized and resists that. That mm. saying this particular group's experience matters in no way says that another group of people doesn't. It's truly about centering a particular story in a particular moment to offer a specific and precise history. Wow. I'm just out here like, yes, <laughs> I know that's right. Listen, um, this reminds me of a framework called Black Women Best that was championed by Janelle Jones, which essentially says the best outcome for Black women is a better outcome for everyone else. And I think that's also the thesis of the book that you put out you know, this past week. And so that kind of takes me into this next question about, you know, what does it mean to be Black, right? This idea of, you know, you define anti-Blackness as a more pointed and arguably precise term, going back to your point about precision, for the violence and unlivable living Black people endure. How and should we communicate this definition of anti-Blackness more often and more importantly, can anyone be anti-Black? I think the last question is something that a lot of people are curious about. Yes, those are great questions altogether. And so I love that citation you gave to start off this framing because that has been part of kind of Black women's thinking in different iterations yep. for, for decades, for centuries, honestly. So I'm thinking that made me immediately think about Kambahi River Collective and the proclamation that if Black women get free, we all get free because in order right. for Black women to be free, you have to dismantle all of these different systems of oppression. You have to attend to poverty, you have to attend to capitalism, you have to attend to racism and sexism and gender and sexual oppression. You have to do that in mm. order for everyone to be free. And so right. when I think about this, this, this arc or how we talk about racism, right? And I'll give a concrete example, because I think that often helps us to understand why precise language is so necessary. So maternal morbidity, right? For example, yes. Black morbidity, it's something that's gaining a little more traction in terms of national conversations around Black yep. women dying during childbirth, um, immediately after childbirth, and within a year of childbirth, right? And so these statistics yep. are quite alarming. Anywhere from 2.5 to four times more likely to die as wow. a result of wow. birth. So Black people with gestational capacity are literally dying to give birth. And we have a figure of someone like Serena Williams, who is one of the most well-known people on the planet, the GOAT. Right. And she right. is having so, yes. herself, right, and not being believed and not being right. harmed. What right. do you expect or imagine that part? That the average young, think of a Black teenage girl who is pregnant right. and giving birth right. and a system and what kind of encounters she might have in the healthcare system. Right. And so for me, when we're looking at those numbers, we're not just looking at the ways that we can easily say that perhaps race and racism have impacted outcomes. We can talk about a history of racism, but there's right. very, there's something still missing in that. And when we think about mm -hmm. comorbidities, that's why we offer anti-Blackness to see what are the ways that these ideas about Black people fuel a predisposition to premature death. What are the Ooh. ways that we see systems coalescing yeah. to create a context in which Black women are struggling to survive this context of unlivable wow. living? And I don't think racism quite gets us all the way there. It is language that we need. I think it is language that we are slowly becoming more comfortable with, but if we look at the current national conversation and state legislatures pushing for us to not talk about so-called divisive concepts such as race yeah. and racism, 
under the guise of critical race theory, which none, no one seems to really know what it is, is having <laughs> um, these discussions. In that way, we understand that naming anti-Blackness offers, again, that specificity that is lodged in ideas, stereotypes, traumas, particular violence, forms yeah. of violence that have disparately impacted peoples of African descent um, throughout the world. And in that way, we all grow up in an anti-Black society. So there's an internalization that can often happen with some of these wow. ideas, right? There's an internalization wow. of anti-Blackness. Yeah. There's an internalization of patriarchy and misogyny, the ways that we talk about and engage with others who share certain identity mm -hmm. markers with us. And so we're mm -hmm. all in this process of unlearning and divesting from these ideas that we've imbibed. But when we understand that anti-Blackness is at the core of the nation, right? at the very core, that's how you get enslavement. That's how you get Jim Crow. That's how you yeah. get targeted mass incarceration. That it's at the very core. That means that those of us who are raised here, who arrive here, who are come here, who are making lives here are confronting those logics as well. And yeah. though we may be Black, we're still growing up in an anti-Black world. And so I'm very attended to the ways that things are internalized and systems are so harmful and so sophisticated in the ways that they cause harm that sometimes we forget that. So we can talk about all kinds of violence, both from the perspective of what happens at the state level, the structural level, the systemic level. But when we get to this intimate and interpersonal level and intra-communal uh -huh. level, I think it's important to acknowledge what kinds of logics and stereotypes and tropes that we've internalized from these death dealing systems. Wow. <laughs> I think you have one of the best explanations of anti-Blackness that I've ever seen. I would say the person who's probably at the same level as you in terms of how you just explained this is Dr. Tressie McLean Cotton. Oh, yeah. Um, just because yes. it's just like, there's nuances there, right? And there's nuances that people yes. don't want to specifically address. And it reminds me of this quote that, you know, Dr. Cotton actually wrote in her foreword in the Black Agenda, where she said, if you're not centering, you know, Black expertise, Black people, you're becoming a vacuum for white rage. And I think that everything you just said speaks to that, uh, which mm -hmm. I really appreciate. Um, I, I want to keep going. There's so many more questions I have. So Yes, please. First, <laughs> but thank you. This is, I mean, again, your explanation, I'm like, my jaws dropped, but I know we're being filmed, so I got to close it. <laughs> um, so, you know, you discuss in Say Her Name, the disproportionate impact of policing on Black people, and more specifically, Black women, and how your dad introduced you to NWA's F the Police, which, by the way, is a great song, at the tender age of six. Why do you think there is a disconnect between the reality faced by Black parents who have to talk to their children about race at a young age, and white parents who are now complaining that you know, these issues are coming up in school board meetings, right? So there's two different realities that are clearly being lived here. How do you disentangle that? And how does America goddamn sort of inform how we move forward? Yes. So it's so funny when I hear these conversations where like parents are complaining about these right. divisive right. concepts being taught to their children. It's not appropriate for their age. And I'm sitting here like, well, first of all, you need to qualify that and say white parents, because that's what you really right. mean. And parents becomes default for white because apparently only yep. white parents are invested in this where 
Black parents, Indigenous parents, Latinx parents, Asian American, have long been lobbying school boards for more inclusive education, um, the diversification of our curricula, um, for freedom-based pedagogy, um, critically and culturally competent pedagogy. These are things that have been argued for parents of color and anti-racist white parents for years. And yet now we're hearing all this parent backlash and you're just supposed to read in white here because that's who we view as model parents, right? Which right. is deeply racist and anti-black as well. Um, and so in that, what we're what we find in thinking about these concepts and how we talk about this and the talk that I had with my father, some of this is informed because my father at the time was in law enforcement. Um, mm. A correctional officer and a probation officer. And so he had an intense and intimate familiarity with what was happening. So it's interesting that he, at that point in his life, was still part of the criminal punishment system in some way and had that kind of critique. And in fact, him working for it only deepened his critique of those systems. And so when I was little, it was fudge the police, right? That's what I could get away with saying and listening to that song and being with him. But he knew that I wouldn't encounter officer friendly. He knew that my experiences, because I could look out of my window at that point in Northeast Washington, DC and see the ways that my neighborhood was being policed, how right. they treated people in my community, irrespective of whatever kind of status or identity that I, uh -huh. they had. This could be a person who was seen as kind of working class or uh, the post person, right? Who's working right. in the post office, or it could have been someone who was living with addiction and was visibly unhoused. And you would see levels of harassment and engagement that were just right. so horrifying as a child. Yeah. And when I eventually went to other schools and other school settings in predominantly and historically white institutions and would go to their homes and their neighborhoods, I saw a very different relationship to police. Very different. It was protect and serve. There was officer friendly until it got to me and my friends who were Black. And I was like, wow, this is yeah. what my dad was trying to help me to see and understand at six years old. And so mm. although white kids aren't getting the talk, they are certainly getting race knowledge as misinformed and awful and death dealing as it may be at a young yeah. age too. Who matters and who yeah. doesn't? If officers are friendly to me, they must be friendly to everyone else. And because I'm not seeing it in this way, it informs the way I respond when black folks that are part. like, hey, cops are not treating us right. fairly. Cops are brutalizing us and they're like that can't be true because this officer came to right. my school and made me feel safe right yep. and your officer comes to a school police officers were in my school right those are yeah. differences right? that, that is a very different response to yep. policing and so with say her name I really wanted to highlight how I came to understand that why it's so important for us to talk about the roots of policing um yep how much policing has impacted Black women and girls, because again, we tend not to think about women and girls as the primary victims of certain forms right. of police violence, but we also know the second most common form of police violence, and arguably maybe the first, if we actually had more data collection around it, is sexual violence um, right. that we talk about in here. And I, in the book, discuss my own experience with police sexual violence and what inspired me to write about it years after that had happened to really reflect on this is systemic this is unsadly part of how we think about policing and policing's origins in policing black people 
and their movement, particularly as fugitive enslaved people. And so what does it mean to engage a system that was built on containment and anti-Black and protecting property and Black people as property? That's going to be always a fraught relationship until we have a serious reckoning with the core of that and what it means for Black women and girls who can be sexually violated, who can die in police custody because they're not cared for, or who can be criminalized for surviving um, various forms of violence in their lives, but are incarcerated because they survived. And so there are multiple ways that we see how a criminal legal system or justice system for some becomes a criminal punishment system for others. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm just like in awe <laughs> because I just feel like, like you, you, you hit on everything that needs to be said. The, I even think the illustration you provided, where you know the officer might be visiting your school, but they're in my school, right? And to just kind of you know add my little small anecdote on this, yeah. you know, I lived or I live or grew up in a low income um, neighborhood, and so police were in my neighborhood, but I actually ended up going to a predominantly white private school Mm -hmm. on scholarship. And so even just your frame of reference of what does a police officer in my community look like, right? That even kind of frames the way you think about law enforcement, frames the way you think about the criminal justice system, whether or not you think it's actually enacting justice, et cetera. Um, And this kind of pulls me into, I would say, you know, another question that I have for you which says, frankly, you know, you speak more on the parallels between, you know, witnessing assault against, you know, Montana, a Black woman from D.C., and Megan Thee Stallion, right, a very famous rapper that we all know and love. What I have found most striking is that in both incidents, neither woman was taken seriously by the men that that were accused of assault. And so I want to kind of tie this into another question Mm. that I had, how has your personal experience with violence as a Black woman, especially with law enforcement, sort of helped you think through some of these more culturally relevant experiences, but also experiences that are happening to just Black women on the ground? Right. So there are a couple of things that inform that, right? So there's the honesty of it. And, and the honesty of it oftentimes is really hard to confront because oftentimes the people who are harming Black women and girls are people we love um, or in community with and build community with. And that can be exacerbated in various ways by the impact of various systems and structures, right? So on one hand, I talk about in this chapter, seeing a Black woman being brutalized by what I presume was her partner, but certainly another young Black man. It's a young Black couple, throws her out of the car, leaves, and you know, she begins to have a medical emergency and we pull over, my mom and I and a few other cars, we see this. Um, And this is during COVID and the uprising. So, right, there are two kind of major things that are disparately impacting Black communities that are happening in this moment. And the young man comes back, the police arrive. And in that moment, it's all the things I talk about, right? So it's like, I've just witnessed this form of intimate partner violence and I want to be there for this Black girl. I'm literally laying on the ground next to her as we wait for paramedics to arrive as she's seizing. And she's before she starts seizing, she says, I can't breathe. And imagine what that means hearing that in the wake of George Floyd, in the wake of Eric Garner, which are two of the most well-known instances in which we hear those words as their lives are being snuffed out. And also 
the police are coming. And now I'm also concerned about the safety and well-being of all of us, including the young Black man who had just assaulted this young woman, right? And nothing in my politics or anything would let me not be concerned about him, although he had just in a a moment that I witnessed with my own eyes, saw him harm another person. And so Mm. it was about holding both of those things simultaneously. There's nothing in me that would allow me to leave that scene without ensuring that that young man was okay. And without making sure that young woman was okay. And that same summer is when the incident um, between Meg Thee Stallion and Tory Lanez allegedly occurred in which she was shot at right in the injury in her foot which she's still in physical therapy for which the case is just now um moving forward with that um in in meaningful ways and she said at the time she didn't identify him because she was trying to protect everybody at that scene him her the people who were on this other security guard and the other young woman who was in the car because she knew that that scenario could escalate And so initially she's maligned for not saying who it was when she does identify um, and allege that it's Tory Lanez, then she's maligned for doing that and called the liar and, and, and all of these other really awful things that are, that she's maligned to Mm -hmm. this day. And Mm -hmm. so the, the idea that black women silently endure and unequivocally protect everyone is so deeply ingrained that I had to unpack that for myself that in that moment when I witnessed an assault, I I was hoping that she wasn't silently enduring, but we were enduring it together. But our reluctance to engage police and our reluctance to leave the scene until we knew the young man who had just harmed her was okay was still this impulse for protection. And so we wanted to hold those multiple truths and still be able to say, this is an unfair and unjust position that victims of multiple forms of violence are often asked to endure in favor of some kind of larger politic in which their pain is less important. And I wanted to be able to write about this in a way to say, this is not about less important, but I also want us to be honest about our own impulses and why we feel compelled to witness, even when that witnessing is sometimes at the expense of our own well-being. And that is such a long, that's such a long history for Black women and girls. And I want us to do better. I don't want that to be the case, but it would be dishonest in 2020, recognizing what I did to say that I haven't imbibed that and still move with that kind of politic of unequivocally protecting and at what cost. And what are the stakes of that? Um, Right. Who am I? Do you have to prioritize these interests, right? And in my heart, I'm like, I know I prioritize that young Black woman, right? That that was why I stopped in the first place. Right. However, my commitment to marginalized folks and the ways in which Black communities and Black people of all genders are criminalized wouldn't let me leave that scene with anyone else being harmed either, right? And I think about... I'm assured that Megan at, in her 20s, right, she's 25, I think, you know, has already learned that lesson, right? Has already imbibed right. that truth. That is her job to protect because we know that policing is quite violent towards us and might not see her as a victim either. And so in right. that moment, she could have been vulnerable to additional violence, right? So hmm. these are the kinds of things I wanted to work through 
in the book. And that chapter is one where I'm working through it and I'm really walking through my own processing of what it means to silently endure and unequivocally protect. And the cost of that is that four black, on average now, four black women are killed every day in the United States. It was one every 17 hours and I wrote the book. So literally in the context of like a couple Mm -hmm. of years, we've seen an increase in the number of black women. And in many, many cases, it is someone who is over 90%. It's someone the black woman knew who was in community with. And almost 60% of those are an intimate partner or a a former intimate partner. Hmm. You know, I want to spend, or I want to hold some space for a question um, that I think as a young black woman who's listening to you as a brilliant black woman who's, you know, a bit more far along on your journey, do you think that there's ever going to be a time when we won't be perceived as superheroes that can handle everything? And because I think what you talked about, right, you know, quite frankly, a non-black person will listen to that and be like, oh my God, you're, you're a hero for like holding space for multiple people. But I think what people don't recognize is how much of a toll mm-hmm. it takes us t- takes on us, excuse me, emotionally, and sometimes even physically, right? And definitely mentally. And so, you know, is there ever going to be a time where we won't have to serve that role? Does that go back to some of the things that you mentioned before, where Black women actually have to be centered in order for us to actually be seen beyond mm-hmm. that role and, and to be actually seen as human in that situation? Um, and also equally as vulnerable to the different dynamics that are in play? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So there's my hopeful answer, and then there's like yeah. the answer that feels <laughs> I, I more true, so. <laughs> right? Because there's a long history of this. This is where the being a historian is so helpful in writing this book and thinking through all of this, because in the early 20th century, the model for Nanny Helen Burroughs school for black girls for colored girls at the time was specializing in the holy impossible and you know there's a way that you can take that on with pride and i know a number of black women um, black women and identified people girls who take that on of like we can do anything we can do everything we build this in spite of this and all of this we are resilient we are this and i'm like yes and i get it and i want to affirm that and the life-affirming ways that we move through this world in spite of all that is death-dealing towards us. And, not but, oh my gosh, how that contributes to the wearing down of. So I think about the kind of Captain Save America narratives that always come in around electoral politics. So Black women save democracy. Black women make sure Mm -hmm. that a... um, you know, alleged sexual predator doesn't become the senator from Alabama. Black women make sure we turn out Georgia so that the presidency moves from the Trump. I mean, it is so much work. And again, people are grateful. And I think people are well-meaning in the assertion of like their extraordinary, like jubilation with regards, but there's some sense that it's our responsibility to do that. And it feels very, like a, a modern contemporary update of like some kind of mammy that has no needs of her own, that Woo! is nurturing a nation, that is literally birthing a nation from her metaphorical teach and is trying to make us something that we've never been, irrespective of the fact that it's absolutely never been and was never designed to be there for us. 
And so we're compelled to be in this role of what many would call, and I think about the words of like a Salamisha Tillett, of a critical patriot, that we're critical, but we're fighting for democracy, we're fighting for this. And, you know, a lot of Black women got to the point like, what are we fighting for? Because this democracy ain't never really been about that. And you're demanding that we show up as voters and and we show up as poets and we show up as organizers and we show up at marches and we show up in our families, our communities, our religious institutions, all of this. We are the most organizationally committed group <laughs> to everything and giving and generous, but we can't give more than we have. And, you know, people are like, That's we exactly give 100%. Right. You only have 100%. So something is being diminished in that and quite often right. because our own personhood, our own desires, mm. and then maligned for having desires to have leisure and pleasure and intimacies and connections with one another that have nothing to do with being in service to other people yep. or some common yep. goal. And so I think some of this, again, we internalize that to go back to that internalization of being able yep. to do it all and, and, and more. And yeah. it is the demands that are put on us by systems that are constantly warring against us and our humanity and our personhood that mm. many times we show up because we know the stakes are so high. And so insofar yeah. as the stakes are so high, I feel like you'll have Black women who feel compelled, whether explicitly or implicitly, to specialize in the holy impossible, right? Um, yeah. And so that requires the dismantling of these systems. That's when that becomes less true. I don't think we can tell people to stop calling me your superwoman, right? I don't think that's going to work. I think we have mm -hmm. to create conditions under which the kind of labor that we demand of Black women is no longer necessary, which means an undoing, right? And envisioning other ways of living with and among one another and being accountable to one another as a global citizenry, as a global people. Again, wow, just excellent, <laughs> honestly, just excellent. Um, it, you know, as you were talking, it reminded me, I, I wrote an article for Teen Vogue some time ago about sort of Black women and Black women best. And it reminds me of this sort of last sentence that I had written, which said, you, the only way forward with Black is with Black women, not as the saviors of democracies, democracy, excuse me, but as the beneficiaries of it, right? This idea of you know, not being this mammy, right? And not being assumed to clean up everybody else's mess, but, yes. you know, having individuals recognize our humanity, recognize who we are and honoring that in full. Um, and that kind of takes me to the last two questions we have, because we have quite a few questions from the audience, which is great. Um, mm -hmm. The first question is, you know, in the book that I edited, The Black Agenda, Both Solutions for a yes. Broken System, there's sort get of this, that oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, and the book, by the way, features, you know, 35 Black experts, many of which identify as Black women and part of the LGBTQ plus community. There is this common theme that, you know, is made known to me around the criminalization of Black bodies. And that's kind of been the overall theme that we've been talking about today and definitely a pervasive theme throughout the entirety of America. Goddamn. It's a theme that ultimately had me thinking, how does the decriminalization of Black people liberate us all mm. and it's a huge question and yeah. it might actually begin with a smaller question which is how do, I mean maybe not a smaller question but another question that says how do we begin to decriminalize what it means to be black in America and I would argue globally yeah Ooh, so 
Um, really good question, really thoughtful question. Thank you. So, you know, and I'm thinking about the writers I read in Black Agenda and that recurring theme as we talk about Black yeah. life and the importance of putting that all together and kind of curating that. So thank you for that work um, of doing that. I, I think for me, decriminalization begins with a divestment in white supremacy. It begins Ooh. with a divestment in patriarchy. And I think these are deeply intertwined. And our divestment in processes of economic exploitation, which are at the core of so many things, again, locally, nationally, and globally, our relationships with one another are so premised upon those interlocking and interdependent systems. And yeah. so to decriminalize Blackness really is never, like I always say, like when people say like slavery, it was meant to dehumanize mm-hmm. Black people. It's like, actually, it points out the inhumanity of white supremacy. Right. You can't un, you can't take that away from me. You can't evacuate my personhood because you're offering me a position of death and harm. Right. It's your system that is inhumane. Right. And I that, love that. I resist the, the notion that we are dehumanized. Right. Um, or that the that. system is what I want to hold accountable in that context. And so in order to decriminalize blackness, we have to call out, strike down and war against white supremacy because white supremacy is premised upon the myth of the pathologizing of um, the myth of black criminality, the pathologizing yeah. of black people's existence, right? Just yeah. mere existence by existing, by dancing. Right. Look at her, she's hypersexual. That's a fast tailed girl. So we don't have to believe her. She's unrapeable, right? And when you have wow. legal codes that are stemming back from the 18th century saying that black women are unrapeable and you have fast tailed girls as a narrative in the 21st century, we have to be real about the ways that white supremacy and patriarchy are working together to keep things intact. It also keeps a underpaid, um, undervalued and uncared for labor force, right? Because we're moving from the condition of enslaved to persons and the wealth of this nation is premised upon that as well as the genocide of indigenous people. And so I think that there has to be real investment in saying we are not criminal right we are not criminalized but white supremacy depends on that logic patriarchy depends on that logic and so it is always i'm always asking people what are you willing to divest from and invest in what are you willing to unlearn learning is the easy part when you don't know something like a new fact you're like, oh, yeah. that's really cool. I never knew that blah, 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 blah. This animal lived right. in the world. Like, that's a really cool moment. But when you unlearn something, and particularly when it comes to social relations, dynamics, society, yep, you're not just being challenged to learn a new thing. You now have to think about how you learned that untruth, how you mm. learned that problem, who you learned it from, mm. and your relationship yep. to that. So if you learn from your religious institution, that trans people are not worth anything because X, Y, or Z, right? It's not that you just determine that gender identity is so expansive and beautiful and wonderful. And we can think about that in so many beautiful ways. You're now having to be like, well, what's my religious institution lying to me? What is now my relationship to this religious institution? That's a community that's meant a lot to me. So divesting from that particular knowledge, from that particular form of bigotry will distance me from people I love. And then what do I get on the other side of that? And so 
I'm saying there are losses we have to take. We have to be willing to give up certain things and certain intimacies to form more radical and dynamic yeah. and loving and future and forward-looking intimacies that are not wedded to these death-dealing systems. And insofar as we may wed it to those, Black people will be read as criminal. Black people will be read as problem. Black people will be read through the lens of pathology and not through our fullness, our complexity, our flaws, our beauty, our dynamism, and our infinite possibilities. Wow. <laughs> I said wow after every comment. <laughs> I think for me, it's just because you beautifully articulate, like I said, the plight and the promise of Blackness, and more specifically Black womanhood and Black girlhood, this idea that it's very similar to, you know, what I was sharing when I was on um, the book tour I was on earlier this year, this idea that Black humanity is mm. actually at the core of a lot of the solutions that everybody is searching for across mm. all systems, across all communities. And to your point, people are refusing to accept that as the solution because the systems rely on on inhumane practices yeah. against Black people. I love the way you reframe that. It's not necessarily that we're being dehumanized, it's that these systems are inhumane. Yeah. Um, and that puts the blame on the system. Yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense, you know? Yeah. Uh, I love that. Um, I'm going to go ahead, you know, we've reached to our uh, the point in the program where we're heading into the last question. And there's a lot of different questions from the audience, so I will pepper them in after this question. But the last thing I want to say and the last way I want to end is sort of discussing a way of how we move forward, right? A lot of times when you come into spaces like this, people are like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard the problems before, but what does this all mean in light of my own individual contribution? And I love the way you said, you know, what are you investing in and what are you not investing in? Um, but more importantly, how do we protect Black women and girls, mm -hmm. especially those who intersect with other marginalized identities across yes. class? Um, you know, gender identity, sexuality, et cetera. Um, and, I, and I think this is a really important question because you often will see after someone like Stacey Abrams makes headlines, protect Black girls, protect Black women, listen to Black women. But the reality is that doesn't happen in practice. So how do we ensure that this happens in practice? Yes. So one of the things I wanted to do with this book, and it, that's why it ends with hope, right? That I am hopeful and I believe and I bet on Black women and girls and gender expansive people, I bet on us. I believe in us because yeah. I believe in the worlds we've created before and the worlds we will continue to create, even if we don't get to physically experience them, right? The work we do is ancestor work. We, we establish different policies and priorities that prepare us for what's to come and for what future generations, preferably if we are actual good stewards of the planet, um, moving forward, that the world that they will inherit. But that hope for me um, and thinking through this is really grounded in the, that last listing of all of these amazing organizations and collectives right. who are already doing the work. I want folks not to say, I want you to do the internal work. Like think about how does anti-Blackness inform your response to policing? How does anti-Blackness, how do you think about the healthcare system? How do you, all of the systems that I named, I challenge everyone who's in here today and you to challenge folks in your lives to just think about what your relationship to that has been in relationship to how 
So yep. many marginalized groups are experiencing those and see what that disconnect is. Think about the disconnect between that. That's that intimate work of doing justice work, that self-reflection. Yeah. And you can do that in groups. You can do that in unity. But saying, how have I experienced healthcare? And what am I hearing over here that is very different right. from mine? And what are the distinctions that are being made between that? That's the intimate level of doing mm-hmm. this work of self-reflectivity. At the structural level, I want you to support folks who are already doing this work, right? Yep. So many times we think about like, I want to create this. I want to join this. Mm-hmm. I don't need you all to reinvent the wheel. When we say believe and protect Black women, that means protect the things that they've already built. Support Woo. the things that they are still doing. Encourage exactly those right. who like to find the places that are in there. That list is long and by no means exhaustive at the end of the book. Yep. Conclusion. And so there's probably one in your local area. Look for that. That's the work that you can do. That means supporting with yep. resources. That can be time resource. That can be money. That can be any number of skills that you might have that can be applicable to what it is they're doing that you actually are learning from and connecting to and supporting those. That's how you believe and protect. You protect what they're building. You believe in the vision. Right that they're outlining, you're listening to how they're identifying the problems and you're pushing back against a a world that tells us we should not trust, believe, or be in care relationships with Black women. We should fear them. We should demonize them. We should criminalize them. We should look at them suspiciously. That's misogyny noir, right? That racist misogyny that Moya Bailey identified. We have to be intentional about the ways that we support and show up. And I think that if you look for folks already doing that work, then look at how you can best support that work and continue learning from them and learn about it in your specific communities, right? There are different campaigns and initiatives that are happening in various communities of, around these issues, right? So you can care broadly about all of them, but get involved at a very intimate and tangible level. I love that. I love that so much. And it goes into our first audience question. Thank you all so much. Keep submitting your questions. I'm looking at that. That might've been why you saw my finger. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out where to get the chat from. But um, sorry, y'all. That's the train. Look, this is the Zoom world we're in, right? (laughs) This is the Zoom world we're in. My apologies. And so you talk a lot about, you know, organizations that are already doing this work. I love the fact that you say, protect what we've already built, help, you know, build alongside us. Um, And so can you shed a light on some organizations that come to mind that are already working towards justice and improving the lives of Black women and girls? Absolutely. So I immediately think of places like Survived and Punished, which is a collective that's working with um, Black women in particular, but, but like people broadly across genders who have been criminalized for surviving violence. Um, And so in the book, Mm. I talk specifically about both Black girls, women, and women who've been incarcerated for surviving violence and the various ways that that shows up. And so many um, Black women and girls who are incarcerated, whether in juvenile detention or jails or prisons, um, are people who are survivors of violence themselves. And we can add detention Mm -hmm. centers into that as well. And you'll see the levels of which they've experienced violence and can correlate that to incarceration rates, which should tell us something about what's happening. So that's one collective I'm going to do as well. Um, Black Youth Project 
which is used between um, that are under 35, um, that are doing incredible work, their BYP chapters all across the country. We're doing incredible um, Black-centered justice-oriented work um, that work on a number of different issues and are setting forth a youth-centered, but intergenerational in many ways, um, political agenda for what freedom dreams can look like. Um, those are a couple that come to mind immediately um, and thinking about that. But Asada's Daughters, um, A Long Walk Home, a really amazing organization that's an art-based response to sexual violence, um, targeting Black women and girls, um, founded by Salamisha and Sherazad Tillett. Um, you know, it is just kind of just amazing. Black women's blueprint. I, I could go on and on. Um, back yeah. on for Peace, which has us thinking internationally and globally yeah. about our connections and our commitments to this. So um, I always tell people, what are you interested in? I'm not, you know, some of us, it's right. going to be environmental justice. There are Black environmental justice groups. For some of us, it's immigration and thinking about immigration rights absolutely ways to invest in there. And so that list was supposed to pull from some of the kind of national umbrellas, but as well as these very specific issue-based ones. So thinking about reproductive justice rights and the attacks on reproductive justice that are happening right yep. now. We have organizations like Sister Song that are led by primarily queer Black women to think about um, mm -hmm. reproductive injustice and unique, um, the unique things that face Black people with gestational capacity face with regards to reproductive care, which ranges from everything from abortion to forced sterilizations and um, coercive hysterectomies and uh, forced hysterectomies in places like detention centers. So yeah. it's very important to think about, like, you can... Mm. You can find someone who's doing something in a wheelhouse that you want to do. Food justice, if that's your thing, that it's there. Be very clear. Black women have yep. been organizing and organizing and organizing. There is an organization for everybody. Right? Yep. That part, I agree with that. And I would say also, if you want to know more about the organizations that are around um, violence, but other, you know, organizations that support Black women and girls, go pick up America Goddamn. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of suggestions in that book as well. And so um, that that's great. And I, I kind of want to move into sort of this next question where it, it ties into sort of what you were talking about, but it, it really gets at kind of the overall theme of the book. Um, what concerns you the most mm. as we look specifically at violence against Black women and girls? Mm. Um, is it lack of awareness? Is it a broken justice system? I mean, you called it the criminal punishment system. What is it that you think, or what are the things rather that you think are most concerning if we were to have some sort of priority around mm. what we should be addressing? Right. That's hard. I feel like I'm like, is that a yeah. Olympics you know, analysis? But there's so much. Here's, here's what I'll say, right? Since I've written this book, almost every statistic that I listen there has worsened. Wow. Right. And that's in such a short period of time. If you think about the yeah. book being fully drafted in 2020 and here we are now and that's at a moment where we're having national conversations about race yep. in fundamentally unprecedented ways in my lifetime right we're in the street right. it is multiracial it is multi-ethnic it is global right there are connections and people saying you know we want to reform the police no we want to defund the yep. police no we want to abolish the right. police I mean you're having these conversations in ways that I couldn't even have yeah. imagined a decade ago after the response to the murder of Trayvon Martin, right? Which was another kind of yeah. key moment in thinking about national and global conversations around anti-Blackness. And so mm -hmm. for me, that interdependent, like 
what's most important is like understanding how all of these systems depend on one another, right? In the mm-hmm. lives of black women and girls. And so I want yeah. to start having a keep understanding that you can't really understand anti-blackness if you don't also have an understanding of patriarchy. And you can't mm-hmm. really understand patriarchy if you're not understanding how capitalism operates and why it operates in the way that it does yep. in regards to black people. And so I think that you know, what I'm most concerned about is that we often want to narrow in and find the easy answer when it comes yep. to social justice, that we want these easy solutions to hundreds of years of historical unjustness and yep. that has used multiple techniques to, to, to do that. And we have to be able mm-hmm. to hold multitudes and our inability to hold multitudes, to be rigorous in the ways that we analyze and activate means that we're always going to be missing a part of what is needed to move forward. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I feel like, again, everything you said has really hit home with me. Um, And maybe it's just because I I just got got out of this tour where basically we're talking about the same topics. Um, But I think that there is, once again, this specificity around black women and girls that is often missed right Mm -hmm. this is kind of the conversation around the oppression olympics and you know why should we only be focusing on black women how do we know that they're really going to be unlocking what we need um, moving forward and so one thing i wanted to kind of delve into a little bit too from the audience is what role is the media playing in perpetuating and continuing this oppression um, and what needs to change? You know, I'll, I'll say very briefly that, for example, I do think that the depiction of Black women in the media plays a huge role. And I would love to hear your thoughts as a historian and as, mm-hmm. you know, a feminist scholar as to why that's the case and how we can go about addressing that. Right. So, you know, we have to think about media as another system, as another apparatus, as another way that these death-dealing systems recreate, reinvent, and reify themselves. And so, yes, the media is absolutely part of this. And it it is not just like popular media. Like I think the low-hanging fruit is always like reality television or this television show or these stereotypes or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yep. That's also true. Right. But the media matters in that there are, when I began research around this, there were 64,000 Black girls and women missing in the United States. That is now over 90,000. That's crazy. And I charge you to know any of the names of those, but we all remember Gabby Petito and, you know, may she rest in peace and her loved ones be comforted in this moment. But the way that the news cycle even addressed her going missing and attended to what it means for this, right? So we had a slight conversation nationally for a couple of days about missing white girls syndrome and what that looks like. But I mean, then it didn't really move us beyond the incredible work already of other Black women who produced the wonderful HBO documentary series, Black and Missing, to really center Black girls and women in that conversation with regards to trafficking, with regards to the child welfare system, with regards to what is happening that these girls are going missing and we don't get Amber Alerts and we don't get national news coverage, right? That's a media problem that we have to be real about, about who the media values, who they see dollars attached to if we promote and talk about these stories, who's going to care, right? That the exemplify the gap that we're often talking about. 
right? Mm. And so I think in that instance, you can see how media plays out in these conversations or the way media is used to talk about certain forms of violence. So in the book, I talk about the history of the phrase officer-involved shooting. And if you say officer-involved shooting, it doesn't tell you how the officer was involved. You just know that. that, that. And if you believe cops protect yep. and serve, chances are that immediately encourages you to think about the cop as a victim or the cop as someone, if he had to discharge his weapon, he must have had to do it because he wouldn't have been involved in the shooting if that were not the case, right? So there's a way that that operates and works. And in the book, I detail the history of that term and how it's attached to police killings of Black women. Right. Right. And so even our language and discourse that media actively use right now erase mm-hmm. and evacuate victimhood from Black people. It, it criminalizes us implicitly and explicitly attempts to exonerate those who harm us, right? And so in that way, that's important. Or you could think about something like opioid patient versus crack hoe. We were crack hoes. That part- white women who are struggling with mm-hmm. addiction. And, and I say that with the, the intention of being very made in my talking about how we talk about what it means to live with addiction as we should, mm-hmm. it's humanizing. A patient, that's wholly different from all of the ways that we'll still will joke now. Cause you'll never heard about like an opioid whore. That's not a term you've ever heard used, right? right? But it is racialized, right. it is gendered and it is so incredibly yep. loaded. And that's the ways that media plays into our rhetoric, who we care about, who we invest mm-hmm. in, who we believe mm-hmm. and who we champion for. Right. And so in that way, I will never let media off the hook in terms of replicating, reifying or even issuing other kinds of death dealing rhetoric and examples and tropes about marginalized groups and specifically black women, girls and gender expansive people. Oh, my gosh. Um, Once again, I I love everything that you had to say about this topic. And I agree with all of it, quite frankly. There was one question around corporate America, but I do think it revolves around the same sort of apparatus as the media, right? This idea of, you know, taking a perception of Black people and sort of extrapolating the worst parts and putting that out into the world and having that perpetuate the violence against um, Black women and girls and non-binary folks. And so... You know, I want to go ahead and sort of conclude things here because I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you've given us so much to think about. As you all know, America Goddamn is in all bookstores nationwide, right? Make sure that you grab your copy. If this conversation had any bit of interest for you, don't just grab a copy for yourself, but also grab a copy for someone else. Our thanks to Dr. Treve, excuse me, Treva Lindsay author of America Goddamn, Violence, Black Women, and the Struggle for Justice for being with us today. Like I said before, we encourage everyone to purchase a copy of Trela's book at your local bookstore. Yes, and if or you Commonwealth. You can buy it here. Or, yes, or Commonwealth. Sorry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and if you would like to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programs possible, please visit commonwealth.org commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Anna Gifty, a Poku Adjman, and thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much, y'all. Thank you, Anna. Such a wonderful conversation. Likewise.